everyone, Brian Beeler here. Thanks for joining us on the uh, video or audio podcast, however you like to consume this. Today we've got a uh, what I hope to be a really exciting conversation with uh, Sebastian John over at Fizon. And Fizon, as most of you know, that have followed our work as one of the leaders in SSD controllers, although I'm sure uh, Sebastian will quickly correct me and tell me whatever else that they do that they're involved in, but that's the fun of the conversation, right? The, the real exciting piece, though, is that they're on the leading edge of uh, controller design and are one of the first, or maybe the first, to talk about Gen 5 and to announce a formal product, their E26. So we're going to get into that, learn all about controller design for SSDs, uh, what Gen 5 means, and all sorts of other great topics. Uh, Sebastian, thanks for uh, joining us today. I'm happy to join you, and thank you. Okay, so I, I set you up as a controller company. Tell me I'm yeah. wrong. Well, you are. <laughs> but let's go into the details. So Fizon actually started off about 20 years ago as one of the first companies making USB drives. And we've grown ever since and expanded into pretty much every domain. The only interface that we don't make today is SCSI. And, and that one, it, it just has its own kind of space. Um, apart from that, you know, I mean, the, the, most of our products are either in USB, um, SATA, NVMe, and then we have make every sort of card format that exists, SD, micro SD, and um, you know, and then we make industrial devices, and we have applications in medical, aerospace, uh, and automotive. We're actually branching out pretty big in that area too. But um, you know, and we started off as, like I said, as a small little company that made controllers and and made what we call modules, which means fully functional SSDs. And now we branched into a 1.6 billion dollar what we call a technology company. So we don't think of ourselves as a controller company anymore, and we don't think of ourselves in a, as an SSD company anymore. We think of, a, uh, of ourselves as a company that focuses on um, you know, having that next generation cutting technology and having things ready for, uh, so that when our customers come knocking on the door, because you can't really buy a Fizon drive today, um, usually we work with technology partners. Uh, some of the, one of the most well-known ones is Kingston, but there are probably 20 other major brands that use us. And so we basically function as an engineering team. We design to their specs and we help them get products out to market on time. So that long-winded explanation is what Fizon is today. So a fancy controller company. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> we have Dijon Mustard and um, right. and Dijon Ketchup. So that's well, how you know our cafeteria is fancy. Yeah, right. So we, uh, we've we talked a lot lately on the site and, and on some of our videos about the E18 controller that we've seen pop up in the uh, gaming lines from Seagate, uh, from Corsair. That's a really nifty controller. And we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on E18, but uh, I think it's important to highlight when you talk about what Fizon is, who Fizon is, that... Uh, it it can be hard because you you get mentioned in the same breath sometimes as Samsung, WD, Intel, like all these other big brands that that everyone knows, uh, and and little plucky Fizon comes along with this E18 controller and drops a uh, an SSD on the market that is arguably one of the best right now for high end client computing. I mean that's pretty yeah. strong. Yeah, but remember we're not small. Most of these large companies right. might have two or three engineering teams. We have 20. 
we're huge. It's just that nobody knows who we are. Now, how we came about with the E18, we started off with the E12, which was a Gen 3 controller, had good commercial success. And from each step, we, we learned and we applied it. And by the time we got to E18, we were taking the feedback that we got from the other um, drives. One of the important factors was low Q-depth performance. And we, we just piled all of that learning in. And there was actually a lot of sort of nitty-gritty details where we were like prefetching commands uh, proactively and prefetching data and, and automating all of that into our data path so that firmware wasn't involved um, in the standard read-write critical path. And that's essentially mm. what allowed the E18 to happen. That, and we coupled it with basically the fastest NAND available today, which I think for that one was uh, Micron B27 and Micron B47. I can't remember if it's 47 or 48. Mm. But, uh, you know, uh, combining both the technology and the NAND um, together um, in that particular product allowed us to be really successful. But um, as we move forward, all of the other NAND vendors are stepping up. It's it's always an arms race, which is who is the fastest now. And then the next version that's released by maybe, for example, like BIX-5 will be faster than, than you know, the, the previous NAND that we were using. So let's, let's break down some of those components because you hit on a couple things I want to talk about. First of all, the NAND, you're NAND agnostic, so you don't mm -hmm. care what's the yep. fastest. You can tune your controller commands for that NAND to have a nice yes. you know, relationship there. Mm -hmm. What's going on in NAND that, that you, I mean, you don't make the NAND, but you obviously interface very closely with it. What What's going on there that's exciting from a NAND perspective? <sighs> Probably the most interesting thing, there, there's a couple aspects that are moving hand in hand. Um, to get the cost to go down generation over generation, NAND is becoming bigger and bigger. But as the NAND density goes up, the client density doesn't um, scale linearly. So just because the NAND die went from 256 gigabit to 512 gigabit doesn't mean that now everybody's buying, you know, one terabyte SSDs instead of 512. So um, what the NAND vendors uh, have done to kind of compensate for this is that they've added low level features where each individual plane of the NAND can be addressed, um, which allows um, which allows for a lot more parallelism. So if a, a NAND die has two planes or four planes, now they're essentially treated as two or four independent devices and you can uh, interact with them um, with a granularity that didn't exist three or four generations ago. Before it was, you just interact with the whole die. Now right. you interact with the individual plane. Um, so that has changed a lot um, and um, of how we interact with the NAND and allows the SSD to behave either equal or even better than the previous generation, even though the total number of internal die has decreased. So um, that's one aspect that's better. The other aspect that's better is that the um, uh, the uh, the bus speed of the NAND, which uses a standard called ONFI. So the ONFI bus speed is going up dramatically with every generation. A few years ago, it was 800, then 12, then 16, 24. We now have a line of sight to 36 and 48 over the next few years. And and this is, this is to, again, offset the lower die count and also to keep up with the evolving growth of Gen 3, 4, 5, and, and PCIe Gen 6 down the road. That's interesting. Um, what? So that's all on the performance side. What do you make of uh, more capacity or value-centric NAND growth via QLC and other technologies? Yeah. 
for the client workspace, QLC is really excellent because fundamentally, when, you, when you're a client, right, when you're a user using your computer and you're browsing either the internet or using Facebook or watching Netflix or any other streaming service, the interaction that you actually have with your SSD is sporadic. So there's a little burst of activity and then a lot of nothing. And so what that means is that by being careful with how we design the SSD, by putting what we call an SLC cache in front of the QLC bulk storage, we allow the user write interaction to essentially be at SLC speeds. We move that data to QLC in the background when the drive is doing nothing. And then we store all that data in QLC. So that gives you the SLC experience with a QLC drive. Now, if you start to treat an, uh, a QLC drive um, as though it was 100% SLC, you will quickly exhaust the SLC cache <laughs> in the sustained workload. And then you, right. you, you see the QLC speed, which is not great unless you have a huge die count on an enterprise drive. Mm -hmm. But that workload doesn't really exist on the client on the client side. So. What that means in practical terms is that we can really bring down the drive cost while still giving the user the same experience, which is a win, I think, for most users. Yeah, I mean, we learned the hard way in the early testing days of the QLC drives that if you run your same test plan against that as you would you know, a preview offering, you will be disappointed pretty quickly once you blow yeah. up the... Uh, that cache. But you're right. I mean, for most users, for, like if you look at the bulk of what Best Buy sells or Apple sells for $899 or $999 yeah. in, in a thin and light laptop, I use a MacBook Air. I mean, these types of use cases aren't super intense. But, you know, then there's plenty of others like gaming or, or CAD or yeah. Creative Pros or whatever, where you really want that high end performance all the way through the system, including yes. dedicated GPU, good SSD, yeah. all those sorts of things. And we have drives for those workloads too, but they don't Absolutely, cost you know a right. hundred dollars or sixty dollars, whatever price you can get that one terabyte SSD for. If you want a sustained workload for CAD that you can just pound down that drive for you know thousands of drive rights and never see a dip in performance, then you want to look for a different product, and it's going to cost more because mm -hmm. we have to design it to that higher standard. So you also mentioned firmware kind of in passing as, as you were talking about the drive, and that, that's always been the thing, right? NAND, controller, you know, maybe DRAM, and then firmware was a, another core component there. And the, the vertically integrated guys, I'll just say it, you know, like Samsung and, and, and maybe uh, uh, Toshiba Kyoxia for a while or, or others that have, that have done some of this Intel maybe uh, in, in some phases of their life, you know, having control over that stack has been beneficial, but it sounds like maybe, I'll put words in your mouth, that, that maybe the ongoing updates to firmware that we're used to seeing in the SSD world may be less common going forward. Do you feel like that's a thing with firmware where it's getting tidied up to the point? Like in the early days, we would get a, an OCZ drive, for instance, and get firmware updates six times in a year. I mean, that... Oh. <laughs> not a great, not a great model, you know exactly. But you know it was happening all the time. Is is firmware getting more stable these days? Uh, I, I think the requirement, like the, the the days of the Wild West SSD, are kind of mm -hmm. over, and they're treated with much more maturity. It's not that the firmware is easier. In fact, it gets harder and harder with each generation of NAND. Um, but rather that we have a much more mature release process, and and that really that maturity is. You know, our customers demand it. Um, so, and 
I mean, that's part of it. The other part is that even if we make firmware releases available, most people will not know that they're available or know to upgrade their SSD. So it really comes down to, um, you know, giving the user the best experience possible when we release that first gen SSD. We hope to never have to release another firmware. Uh, occasionally, it's necessary, and and that's not a strike on the driver of the company. We just found a bug, like sure. like you find with the operating system. Um, but um, we try really hard, and, and that's where a lot of the uh, um, effort goes into releasing the drive is a very very comprehensive test process. Okay, well, fair enough. Um, that makes sense. I mean, it's uncommon, but even hard drives back in the day used to get firmware or, uh, upgrades. Not not often because those were so much harder to uh, to deploy. So for your customers that are using a, a controller set like E18, mm-hmm. then where talk to me about those requirements. Where can they differentiate outside of aesthetics like heat sinks and those sorts of things in client drive world? Can you uh, tune for them a firmware that might be more targeted for a specific mm-hmm. workload, or, or what? Yeah. Where else can they differentiate? Well, part of it comes down to the requirements that they give us and the test suite that they set up. Um, if you change, I mean, regardless of even if you tested to customer A's requirements and they're super mm-hmm. huge, if customer B comes up with a different set of test suites or test criteria, then that requires some tuning right there, which will change some you know, subtle characteristics of the drive. On the more concrete side, um, we can do things like change the over-provisioning. Like they, there are knobs that you can turn on the SSD, which are just trade-offs. Um, so you can increase the over-provisioning. You can change the cache policy into, you know, how long you wait before flushing the cache. Do you keep mm-hmm. residual data in the cache? That can help, for example, um, one strategy is to keep the last 100 meg last written 100 megabytes of data into the drive and because the most recently written data is also the most likely to be invalidated so if you just keep it in the slc cache and you don't flush it to tlc or qlc then um, you improve you can potentially improve sustained performance you also reduce write amplification which increases the drive life but if you the trade-off of that of course is it helps the right amplification of the WAF, um, mm-hmm. but if you get a burst of activity, you've pre-consumed 100 megabytes, and so your your burst of activity might um, hit the end of the cache sooner than another design might have. So there's there's a lot of trade-offs that we can do on the drive, and it really comes down to what the customer wants. Um, and we can also optimize for completely different workloads. Like we've started to opt, uh, we've started to develop a. a a firmware that goes towards gaming 2.0 and what comes after, for example, Microsoft Direct Storage. And hmm. and as it continues to move forward, one of the workloads that you will see is something called 64K texture streaming. And that 64K doesn't mean like 4K TV or something like that. It's actually just the file size. The natural um, granularity of texture files on most gaming cards um, is 64K. And so what happens is the games start pulling those in just in time, and they start treating the SSD like a great big cache. And that's where Mm -hmm. Gen 4 and Gen 5 come in. Um, and, And I'll talk about that later once we get to that topic. Yeah, it, we'll get there soon. I promise I'll let you. <laughs> Just as we start talking, all these old memories bubble up. So one last thing before we abandon uh, the control, this initial controller is designed for what you have out now. You talked about the customer feedback getting you to, to E18 uh, from E12, E16, other prior products. What has that been like for you? Because it 
again, it feels like E18 is such, from our standpoint, is such a successful controller from a performance profile. Mm-hmm. Like you guys must be really proud of that, we are, or for sure, or we're <laughs> we're proud of it for you, and <laughs> at a minimum, um, it's it's such a a great leap forward. Yeah. Uh, and so you talked about customer feedback. Can you describe some of that at a high level? Yeah. Well, it, it, it kind of, the Gen 4 feeds into the Gen 5. So mm-hmm. before we, our first Gen 4 product was the E16, which did about five gigabytes per second. And that was very much a, uh, a, uh, uh, high profile product that we de- uh, developed in collaboration with AMD. We did a lot of onsite testing with them and, um, we got our product to, a, you know, and, and it was a short development cycle. So that one was, uh, you know, it was only achieving five gigabytes per second, but it was very successful at the time. And it was the only Gen 4 on the market for about 18 months, client Gen 4. Um, and then when we had the E18, we actually had the time to really develop that one. And um, there were a lot of hardware changes that went into the E18 um, that we wanted to do for the E16, but couldn't because that one was very much a time-to-market product um, to intercept the the Gen 4 technology that was coming out. Um, and, and so that, that feedback really comes from the reviewers. We do listen to the reviewer community, even though we don't necessarily post on every thread, on every message board kind of thing. But we do look for the general trends and, and listen to the feedback that was given and, and look at our rankings and the various you know testing that people do. Sure. Um, and, and of course, we do our own testing too, so none of it was a surprise. But we, we had on our to-do list for quite some time to improve our latency and improve our low Q-depth handling. And so that entailed a, a big review of, of, of the entire front-end pipeline to look at every little step and when there was idle time and then squeezing it out. So it was, it was actually a really big engineering effort to find those and then tune for it and design the hardware to support it. Um, but I mean, that was the, the primary complaint that we had and we, then we addressed it. And, and as other ones come up, we'll continue to address them as well. Gosh, that sounds excruciating. I feel bad for those guys looking to squeeze out milliseconds from the entire data path. Microseconds and picoseconds, actually. Oh, milliseconds. Oh. If you're in the millisecond range, you're not even you're, It's too late, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that sounds brutal. Okay, so we've talked a lot so far about client controllers for the most part. Uh, what's the enterprise story either today or on a go-forward basis from Fizon? Well, so initially our story was um, focused on up-leveling a high-end client controller. So the E12 became the E12DC. DC stands for data center. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the lowest tier of enterprise. Um, and these are people that basically need um, steady state performance and consistent latency, but don't really care about any other features. Um, but uh, starting about two years ago, we decided that we were actually gonna jump in um, you know, put all of our energy into, you know, this was going to be our next growth segment. So we actually designed what we were calling the X1 controller, which is a very high-end enterprise controller, 18 channels. It's it's actually capable of Gen 4 by 8, so the entire data path is scaled to 14 gigabytes per second. Um, and it could have gone into, for example, an E1S, uh, sorry, the, the new EDSFF form factors like E1 or E3. Um, they can support up to eight lanes, though nobody really deploys them that way. But still, the point was to make essentially a really, really high-end controller. And the thing with enterprise controllers is that they take years to develop and years to mature and validate and get them out into product. Yeah, the, think, the validation bit is not to be underestimated. 
years. <laughs> yes. Easily, easily six, I mean, minimum six months if it's just a NAND increment, but if it's a whole new product, mm -hmm. 18 to 24 months is not uncommon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so that one should be coming out second half of, oh shoot, I won't guess. Um, I don't remember the date very well. I can't remember if it's second half 21 or 22, but soon in, in drive terms. Um, so that was the first one. And then from there we cascaded with that, that base architecture, which is, um, uh, which is a new architecture that supports enterprise, um, has become the basis for all of our high-end controllers now, and the E26 falls into that category. Um, it is very similar, like the internal design is very similar to the X1, with the difference that it has a Gen 5 interface on the front end, and on the back end it has eight channels instead of 16. Um, and, and that architecture, when we when we were coming up with it, you know, we asked ourselves, is there enough of a market for this on enterprise? And the answer is no, it's still emerging. Um, and, you know, could we, did we want to design a, a controller like the E18, but with Gen 5 on it? And we thought, no, well, that's hard to justify that market small too. And so we went, you know, peanut butter and chocolate kind of on it, smushed them together and said, why don't we just make a high-end controller, turn off the features that don't make sense for the client world and, um, you know, get as much reuse out of the uh, chip design, you know, the chip we designed, get as, get it into as many segments as possible. And and that's where the E26 came from. Yeah, well, it feels like um, from the enterprise server design space, for instance, which you, know, you follow closely, that we've talked to a lot of guys lately. We've talked to um, Jason Adrian from uh, Storage Guy over at Azure on E1.S. We've done a bunch of ruler stuff lately, talked to Viking about their, their ruler server. And everyone that's in the space really feels like Gen 5 is the next major design inflection opportunity for the big server vendors, right? For your Dell, yes. Cisco, HPE, Supermicro, yeah. all these guys. And a lot of them have skipped, especially with Ruler, the Gen 4 product entirely. So Viking is one of the few out there that even has a, a Gen 4 uh, E1S platform that's you know broadly consumable, not just for hyperscalers. Mm -hmm. um, but five, that's the point where where we could really see a lot of new stuff potentially either form mm -hmm. factors in traditional enterprise uh, servers or for you, guys like you, you know, slipping in and saying, okay, we're ready now and, and we've got <laughs> this, this uh, potentially awesome product. Um, yeah, I mean, everything that we've talked about in the client space allowing brands to differentiate really still applies in enterprise too because very few sure. people would have their own controller in one space or the other, right? So yeah, um, quite a bit of potential there. So talk about Gen Five. What is mm -hmm. what is what does the E twenty six product get you from a four to five, and and what were some of the challenges to get there? The the thing. Well, let let me start off by throwing out like a little factoid, right? Yeah. Gen Five is the same speed as LPD or sorry DDR four. I mean, DDR4 has a range of speeds, but if you look at the low end of DDR4, that's Gen 5. They're roughly the same. And so this is the first time that you have an SSD that can that can interact with the CPU as at the same speed or in the same range of speeds as DDR. Now, an SSD will never replace DDR because DDR you know, has super ultra low latency. It can be addressed in, in very tiny granularities, whereas functionally, regardless of what the LBA size is, an SSD works on a 4K granularity and works better with larger commands. Um, but what that means, what Gen 5 means both to the client and the enterprise space is that the SSD is quickly becoming 
akin to a level three or a level four cache, depending on which architecture you're looking at. But it's it's quite a few steps away from the CPU, but it's still in that crazy CPU speed. Whereas, you know, four years ago, SSDs were maybe 1.52 gigabytes per second, and that's assuming you had an NVMe. If you had a SATA SSD, then it was 600 megabytes per second. You know, yeah. so now we're talking about 14 gigabytes per second. Um, and by treating it as a cache, you know what that means is that you're going to get longer cache lines. And as you progress from level four cache all the way up to level one, you know those cache lines get shorter and shorter. Um, but what that means is that you no longer need to put a ton of DRAM to do those AI and machine learning applications. Um, I did a quick calculation. I don't know if I can. Uh, uh, I think I. There's my mouse. When you have multiple screens, every once in a while you lose your mouse pointer. <laughs> That's um, all right. I wrote something down yesterday, and yeah, okay. So if you were to buy eight terabytes of DDR and, and to actually get that to fit into the DIMM slots that are available, it's gonna cost you uh, $64,000. If you want an eight terabyte SSD today, it costs about $1.4,000. So you know that that's kind of what you're working with. And, and eight terabytes of DRAM, yes, you can do a lot with that. And if your calculation space really does require eight terabytes of DRAM, then that's where you need to be. But in most cases, your active data set is quite a bit smaller. And if you can fetch it at almost DRAM speeds off of your level four cache, you're now trading off $64,000 worth of DRAM to $1,400 worth of SSD. And that changes the, and that's only one. Most systems can accommodate, you know, a large number of SSDs. Uh, 24 is not uncommon. Sure. So you could have a petabyte of data that you can access at almost DRAM speeds and load in the subset that you need, which might just be a couple hundred gigabytes, maybe a couple terabytes. And, and that vastly increases the amount of AI space that you can work with through machine learning and, and other types of models. So, well, that's I can, so I, I can already hear uh, the, the souls twitching out in, in Portland. Uh, <laughs> over storage class memory, the assault yeah. that you just uh, launched against that, um, because that was, that's been the pitch for our, uh, Excel flash from, sure. from Qlixia or Optane from Intel, right? Yes. That, that we need something faster than, than traditional NAND storage, but less expensive than DRAM to kind of fill that gap. But it's the, the success has been moderate to be fair. And that's because that price, I mean, from my perspective, we have access to the data sheets and, and we've looked to see, hey, can we do something with this? And what it comes down to is that uh, Excel Flash or Xenand or, or whichever accelerated Flash product you want to look at, it's actually really, really good for the, uh, what was the, 4K I.O. size. So their, their 4K I.O. latency is quite a bit shorter than even SLC by maybe 2 or 3x. Um, but uh, if you can say, increase that Q depth to maybe you know 128 command Q depth, then you can quickly erase that that delta, and so it's a product that's that's and their density is still quite low, so it's a product that's still relatively expensive, um, and it has applications, but they're very narrow. And if you treat the SSD like a level four cache, then you don't need. Um, to be encumbered by something like Excel or Xenand, um, you, you can work with just a conventional SSD that's running at those Gen 5 speeds. Um, and and you, you reap a huge uh, benefit um, in cost reduction. So, you know, the, the, 
Xenon has existed for years, uh, and XL Flash has existed for years, and it's had moderate success. It does fill a need, but it turns mm -hmm. out that the cost is not enough for everybody to jump on it wholesale. I believe the arrival of TLC and even QLC in this space will will kind of hit that that nirvana that people were looking for, something that's kind of like DRAM but much cheaper. And if the flow is primarily read intensive, like many data analysis workloads are, then QLC will actually work quite well, particularly at those high de densities, because there's so many die that can be activated in parallel that you're just not gonna see the QLC latency. And that, that'll that make the drive even cheaper. It, it won't be one, um, I think that was a TLC drive. It won't be one, you know, $1,400, it'll be less than that. So yeah, well, you've got you've got some application intelligence issues there too, right? Because we yeah. can we can design the way the applications interact with Flash mm -hmm. once you understand the underlying Flash a little bit better, so that you're not asking QLC drives for a bunch of random stuff all at once, and that you kind of coalesce those reads and writes to make it just a little more friendly in the in the interaction. You can, and, and that's where technology like uh, Zone Namespace actually turns out to be interesting. It helps, um, it definitely helps shingled SMR drives, and it, mm -hmm. it also helps SSDs in general because by its very nature, you eliminate garbage collection and you eliminate WAF because there are data WAF because there's no garbage collection. Um, mm -hmm. And so, but nothing's free, right? You basically push that garbage collection workload up to the host. And so there's a trade-off. Maybe if you have three or four drives, it's not a big deal, but if you have 64 drives in your chassis, you may end up finding that a lot of your drives, or you're spending a lot of CPU power maintaining the data on those drives. Um, I'm not a, you know, a storage system designer, so I can't really comment on that, but it's certainly, certainly something to consider. ZNS opens up applications, but it also shifts the challenges, and, and we'll see how that gets applied over the next couple of years as it matures. Yeah, I mean, ZNS is definitely something the hyperscalers are, are juiced about because they have that ability to, to di dive at the deepest levels into their software and applications to tune them and, and take advantage of how they communicate with with individual blocks rather than just the, the drive uh, on, on, its, uh, on its entirety. Whether or not Microsoft does that in Windows, I mean, is a, is a different animal entirely. So talk to me, though, because we're talking a lot about the enterprise space yep. with E26 and Gen 5, and I don't want to abandon that, but <laughs> how do you guys start to, to manage the duality between the client needs and concerns versus enterprise? Because they're so different, and even if the they drives are. Are, are functionally similar, um, it's hard to imagine a lot of client systems really needing Gen 5 SSDs in the next 18 months. That's a fair statement. Um... The way I look at it is this way. At a very bare minimum, you're going to get an increment or an improvement to your load times. They will be faster. No um, right. So, so there's there's a drop in benefit, you know, right there. The rest of it will come to pass as the uh, gaming technology and the OS technology and, and the large application technology, like for example, you know, Adobe Photoshop or. Sure those other big ones yep. um, as they as they kind of digest what this means and and it goes back to what I was saying earlier that the SSD now becomes you know a DRAM assist module a very you know very much like a level 4 cache mm -hmm. and so from an OS perspective what that means is that you don't have to load everything into DRAM before you start doing anything so your boot time is going to be faster um, and everything is going to be shifting towards just-in-time loading likely the amount of DRAM in the system will come down which helps 
helps reduce cost, helps reduce power, and will make your battery last longer. I mean, the, the two big, three biggest consumers of power on a, on a battery-powered device are your screen, um, your DDR, and your CPU, followed closely by um, your, you know, your, your radios, for example, like Wi-Fi, um, when they're in use. So, um, you know, reducing the amount of DRAM reduces the amount of heat, reduces the cooling, allows devices to get smaller, allows batteries to last longer, and having everything loading just in time off a very snappy SSD means that your your experience is going to be a lot more like your phone, oddly enough, which is actually the gold standard of laptops these days, is we need to make it look snappy and fast like a phone. Um, but even a phone has loading time when you click on an app, though it's it's relatively quick. Mm-hmm. So it's something that's coming down the pipeline. It's not here today. And then the other one is what I was alluding to before, which is the texture streaming. That is coming too, but it's probably, um, honestly, a couple years away before you really see major titles that are making use of it. Um, but it's, it's kind of like a chicken and an egg thing. The technology has to come before it can be designed into you know, higher upstream products. Um, and so that's what we're doing. Um, and, and so, you know, will an average consumer tomorrow, you know, need a Gen 5 SSD? No, probably not. But would a super gamer want one? Yeah. Um, oh, it, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And, and all the professional users, anyone that's in you know, SolidWorks or AutoCAD or engineering sure. or, or design, uh, creative pros, those guys will be for sure hungry for at least one yes. or two in their systems, right? Because all of those tasks are time to money the faster i can render the thing whether it's a car airflow uh for for designing a a sports car or if it's exporting or rendering a video that i made you know to go load on youtube all those things that take time system time uh you accelerate those and there's a very real economic benefit Uh, it just it's just kind of crazy at how fast gen 4 to gen 5 the jump will have in effect been you know very very quick yeah and five to six i mean we, we haven't even it's talked about two. six yet but the the gap between five and six might even be tighter than four to five it might and i suspect after six seven at the latest it'll probably peter out because now the storage is vastly outpacing the rest of the system and generally what you want to achieve is equilibrium between the components Mm -hmm. for a long time gen 3 was good enough because nothing could could consume gen 4 sorry gen 3 by 4 gen 3 by 8 speeds and then actually the gpus and this is where amd came about their their gpu at the time they realized gosh you know we're running out of bandwidth um and if we start designing gen 3 by 16s that's really going to limit the number of systems we can put into it so the graphic cards pushed us to gen 4 but the um the size of the dram application or the amount of dram needed in systems for modern applications particularly in the ai side is what pushed us to gen 5 um because at the uh, cpu level the, the cpu vendors are reducing the number of dram channels that they have generation over generation and they're pushing that dram actually onto the pcie bus using a technology called cxl um and so cxl kind of allows the the system developers to cater to those applications that need crazy amounts of memory um, without burdening that system cost on everybody else who gets, you know, um, some people need more compute, they need multiple CPUs, but very few people need eight terabytes of DRAM. So by shuffling this around, it allows the economics of enterprise servers to be more tunable to the specific application. But with the arrival of Gen 5 that supports DRAM,
RAM on the PCIe bus because now you're you know you have LPDDR4 speeds or slow LPDDR4 speeds with Gen 5. Um, SSD can slot right into there and it won't replace the DDR5, uh, well the DDR in general, but it does as I was mentioning at the beginning of this conversation, create a vast pool of storage that can be accessed very quickly. Speaking of vast pool of storage, I mean, you guys are very focused on the componentry of, of flash storage. Mm-hmm. How much then do you start to get into or, or where can you contribute or can you contribute when you look at things like DPUs? Uh, when we think about going back to JBOF maybe, controlled with a NVIDIA Bluefield, uh, you know, NIC hybrid DPU thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the work, we just did a review of uh, Grade, which is a uh, AI software RAID algorithm that runs on a GPU instead of a traditional hardware uh, mm-hmm. RAID card. There's all sorts of neat stuff happening. So when we talk about Gen 5 as a transition point for system designers, it's also very much a a possible transition point, if not sooner, for the way Flash gets consumed, especially in the enterprise, less so in client systems. How much do you guys look at these sort of holistic changes or, or you mentioned GPUs and RAM and, and CPUs, but at a certain point you can only control so much. I'm just curious about mm-hmm. how far you try to reach into the up and down the stack and around and, and try to figure out where the, the direction is going or where you can make an impact on, on the outcome. Well, we don't control the operating system as you can imagine, but we do talk to the people developing operating systems and we figure out, is there anything we can do? Um, you know, the, the advent of um, Direct storage is an interesting application. Um, it will have multiple incarnations, and the first one is is is, in some sense, you know, you could look at it as partially disappointing. Is that all it can do? But the short answer is no. That they're just kind of bringing out the structure for it, and as once it gets matured across the huge amount of hardware that it has to be compatible with, um, then they'll be adding on more and more components, um, and and. Though they haven't, you know, I'm not revealing anything because we haven't had a conversation specifically about that or what direction they're going in. If you look at what direct storage will do, which is essentially a read-only read optimized path for fetching data with as little latency as possible, um, that does lend itself to the idea of fetching things just in time, either for the OS or for gaming. So the, the trends are there, and they're, they're definitely building on it. With regard to... Um, the, you know, you'd mentioned different types of storage applications, um, like uh, using a smart NIC or something like that. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, those turn into normal NVMe I/O to the SSD. There is a part of the storage community that says, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if we exposed as much of the SSD as possible and let the application make those decisions?" And I, I had a conversation with. Um, one of our partners a while back, like about two, three years ago, and I said, what are your thoughts on this particular you know, approach? And he said, I mean, his response to me was, how many companies do you think have the ability to actually understand NAND to the point where they can truly manage it? Um, you know, there may be a couple hyperscalers, but would a company like you know, a credit card company be able to do that? Would would a defense contractor be able to do that? Would a hospital be able to do that? And his point was no. Now, it's true that eventually there'll be software and somebody that creates a software tier that can do all of this management. Um, but the question is, is it fundamentally 
better than the technology that we have today. For certain ultra-optimized applications, I'm sure it is. But for the mm -hmm. bulk of them, um, having a block storage device in many cases makes the rest of the system easier to maintain. And you have a huge ecosystem of parts. So when something goes bad, you're not locked into one vendor. Or if that vendor goes out of business, which you know, I've bought technology over the years. I once had a, a RAM drive that fit into an ODD bay and it was cool, except when you lost power and it didn't back up properly, you mm -hmm. know, and then after a while, you can just get tired of having a fidgety system and you take it out and you go back to the way things were because at least it's stable and you don't spend your hobby time or your off time or worse yet, your work time trying to maintain the system. There, there is value and stability. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point about the applications. This is something that's been discussed in the Flash world since the jump, right? I mean, we yeah. used to do a lot of work with Fusion IO. And one of the things that they always said was, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Microsoft could tune SQL Server so that it knew it was interacting with an I.O. drive and that we could more intelligently manage the, the data and the path. And But that stuff never happened. And not I don't I mean, you might have some insight on this. I don't know that it's too hard. Obviously, Microsoft could do whatever they wanted yeah. uh, if if they asserted their will. But ultimately, it's a question of, well, how many of these different things do I have to create? Do I need to do one for every drive type or drive vendor or NAND type or NAND manufacturer and type? Right. I mean, it, it gets to a point where I think as an application guy, unless I'm at the hyperscale where I can really do this and, and, and mm -hmm. incur some sort of financial benefit for doing so, that I'd rather just have the devices be good enough or meet my performance spec or endurance spec or whatever it is yeah. and know that if it's a Micron drive today and an Intel one tomorrow or one of your partners the next day, whatever, right? It, right. it doesn't matter at a certain point. That's sort of where it comes from. You can make the system a percentage faster, but another way to do that is just to have more duplication, what they call scale out kind of thing, right? Where you have two drives, four drives, two racks of drives. And, and have it, there's a difference between having a solution where you're creating something and there's a lot of unknown versus having a solution where you can execute on it, you just buy parts, and yes, it costs more than it might otherwise, but then you can go on and work on the differentiated aspects that make your business worthwhile. So, you know, is is there is a subset of users that will say, hey, wouldn't it be great if these particular drives that I bought were 20% more efficient? And yeah, it would be great. But does it make sense? And when the new generation comes out or when additional quirks on your device start to manifest, do they have to retune that whole driver layer? Having a standard interface kind of allows each chunk of the technology to evolve at its own pace. SSDs are basically being reduced, released every year because NAND is being released every year or somewhere between 12 to 24 months. There's a, for each NAND vendor, there's, there's a new technology node. And the amount of back-end work that we have to do is substantial because every generation NAND gets harder to work with, air recovery gets harder, um, and more and more compute power is dedicated to keeping the NAND alive. Um, and the same is true for, for magnetic drives and optical mm -hmm. drives when they were the, the king of the hill kind of thing. Um, it, it's, it could be done, but it, the return on investment isn't really there. And there are other cheaper ways of solving the problem with, you know, sort of a predictable time to ready, time to, you know, revenue um, that sort of push out the need for having such a tuned operating system. So, yeah, I, I think that's uh, an important perspective. So when you look at what you're doing with E26 then, 
I know it's early. You guys are, are, I think, the first to announce a Gen 5 product, which is pretty cool. Um, I know that was the case for Gen 4, too, so you guys must be excited about that from an innovation standpoint, branding standpoint. Yeah. Really great. Sometime still until we see products, right, because you have to go, to, go through all of your processes. What have you seen so far out of your reference boards or the work you've done in-house on on 26? What's going on there? There are two aspects that were, well, we knew they'd be challenges just because you kind of know which way the technology is going. But one of them was uh, signal integrity on the, the Gen 5 PCIe Phi, and the second one was thermal. So mm-hmm. Fison is one of the few companies that actually develops their own Phi, Um something we're very proud of. If, if you don't build your own FI in-house, then you're going to be licensing your FI from, you know, two or three different companies. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But by by developing our own FI and most of the IP that goes into a chip, it allows us to have much faster time to market. Um, and, um, you know, that, that, that turns into products on the shelf for our customers. Um, well, our customers and their customers, or our indirect customers, um, quite a bit faster. Um, so the Phi was interesting because the um, the M.2 connector is not really designed for Gen 5 and probably can't handle Gen 6 at all. Mm-hmm. But what we found, and, and we did a lot of um, simulation up front, and we work with our motherboard partners to get inf- detailed information on their board design, trace length, and, and all the little nitty-gritty details. And what we found was, the Fison Phi was actually fine with Gen 4. Uh, we, we took a Gen 4 motherboard and ran a Gen 5 signal through it, and, and it was fine. We, we, did, we had acceptable signal integrity, and by acceptable, I mean there was no performance degradation. It was good. But you'll never hear somebody say you have a perfect signal when you talk about signal integrity. There's always sure. super nerdy, nitty-gritty issues. <laughs> but, but from our perspective, if I take a step back and just talk in normal people terms, it worked just fine. Um, and we, you know, our, our board partners were basically saying, yeah, but we're going to upgrade our material anyways, our, our board materials to, to have even better signal integrity. So we thought we're solid. And and I suspect most people will end up there because the M.2 connector has not changed significantly uh, to address Gen 5. Now, there is work being done at the various standards group to address this for Gen 5, Gen 6 and Gen 7. Um, but well, it's let, not let me there ask you. Yet. Let me ask you about that. So for client side, why not go to E1S or something? It's sort of it's sort of 2280-ish. Yeah. You know, it's it's not a major change. What is there any talk there with the board guys you talk to? Short answer is no. The the E1S, the the shortest E1, <laughs> is equivalent to about a 22110. Mm-hmm. And so that's not going to fit in the laptop, which is where most of SSDs are being consumed these days. Yes, there's still plenty of desktops. Those aren't going away. But you don't want to start your conversation by saying, we've got a great new connector, a great new board, totally won't fit in a laptop. Or it will fit, but you've got to have half the battery. You have to make some changes, right? Right. So instead... Um, what we're what the question becomes how do we get a better connector and still support that that 2280 
or that 2230 or 2240. And, and that's where those conversations are going on. Um, it's, it's making something that can work for desktop, client desktop that can work for laptops and allows an easy migration between the two. Because if you make something that's only good for laptops or only good for desktops, then you've essentially reduced your economy of scale. So by being able to lump the two together, you've got a bigger pool, which means you've got a bigger supply and the people making the drives get better prices from their component suppliers because they're buying even greater quantities of them instead of having pool A and pool B and they're slightly mm -hmm. different. That, that's well, the main reason why we didn't go with EDSFF on those, those form factors. Right. Um, interesting. So I was asking about what else you're seeing from, from 26. Um, you know, we know the theoretical uh, throughput potential in Gen 5. Are, do you have any, I know you don't, well, I don't know what you have. What, what do you have? Are you talking about any numbers or any performance or any things in terms of your expectations for, I know, again, we're a while away from end product yeah. being made, but have you guys put out any word on internal validations in terms of what is uh, capable out of a drive? Not yet, um, but of course we're tuning for the max just like everybody else is. You don't walk into a conversation, you know, into a sure. market and say, we're targeting number four. We're going we're gonna to be right there, better than garbage, but, you know, I mean, yeah. not, not, not quite to say as good that as number four is, is necessarily garbage, but you, you know what I mean. It, it's Absolutely. just, we're going for the best that we can. Uh, we have confidence and high hopes that we'll be able to get there. Um, and, and just to maybe finish off my earlier comment about the, mm. you know, the challenge and signal integrity, what we can say though for sure is that M.2 with a strong PHY can be, can support Gen 5. And, and we know we can do it. And from what we've seen at the interops at PCI SIG, our, our competitors can do it too. So in general, I would say, uh, you know, clients who are buying or, you know, consumers who are buying Gen 5 SSDs on a Gen 5 motherboard with a Gen 5 CPU, uh, if they go to get the Gen 5 storage to go, you know, to complete the uh, the outfit, if you will, the collection, um, at this point, we can say with confidence that if the drives are PCIe SIG certified, um, and everyone does get them certified, but if they're a certified drive, then they will work just fine. But as we look for Gen 6, the connector definitely has to change. So expect to see something in the next year or two where there'll be early announcements on new connectors for Gen 6 and right. Gen 7. Well, I bet you guys will just be absolutely thrilled if AMD <laughs> and Intel both get to market at a similar time with Gen 5 so we don't have this staggered uh, year in between like uh, the last time through. It's better for the market when everybody's on board and everybody has products. And, and the way that it's looking now, all the vendors across the board from motherboard CPU down to GPU and storage will have products out in the same time frame, which gives everybody more choice. But it also means that people aren't going to hesitate to see, well, what's coming out next? It's all going to kind of come out together and so they can make decisions, you know, that, that work for them, whatever they end up choosing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, initially, it was a couple Threadripper Pro systems that were out for, for the professional users that could take the Gen 4, and then some enterprise stuff, you know, kind of dripped out with Epic uh, uh, Gen 2, and, and and it was really herky-jerky, right? Because you have you have uh, competing marketing strategies then, too, in terms yeah. of what what either side is, is promoting and, and talking about, but... Uh, yeah, I mean the whole refresh to five seems super exciting. Uh, yeah, your your part sounds like it's coming along. You guys have just must be thrilled for that. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really neat and validating when you can have a product that's wanted by the market out 
on time, it's competitive and it's well received because you know we're working on it one or two years before it goes to the market, and so people and people are working nights and weekends as needed, not every day, but there's a lot of work that goes into it, um, and then to see it come out and be successful and know that you know it's going to benefit consumers and benefit your peers because your company is going to be financially stable is, is, you know, really validating. Um, so that's exciting. Um, for sure. You'd ask some of the other challenges for gen five. And one that I think that's important to mention is the, um, is the uh, thermal aspect. Um, is right. it okay if we touch on that? Absolutely. So the power envelope changes for these drives, right? Yeah, it does. Um, what you generally see is one watt per gigabyte per second. Um, and okay. that gets modified based on the process node that you're using for your controller and the NAND. So it's not exactly one watt per gigabyte per second. And as the SSDs move from, well, these days they're at, you know, 16, 12, 7 nanometer and, and, and on, you will definitely see reductions. And there are other things that we're doing. Like previously I mentioned that the Onfi bus speed was going up. Well, mm -hmm. what that translates to in practical terms is that you no longer need eight channels to saturate, for example, Gen 4 and even Gen 5. Uh, you can you can potentially saturate it with four channels. Um, and reducing the number of back-end channels reduces the total SSD power by typically 20 to 30%. So there are lots of things that we're doing to keep keep that power within a reasonable envelope but for sure the ssds are going to be hotter um with gen 4 sometimes people needed coolers sometimes they were okay with a little metal foil if their board had enough airflow it was fine that will likely be true since we're trying to stick within roughly the same power envelope as we go up um, by making a lot of other changes. Um, if we change nothing, then it would be one watt per gigabyte per second, which quickly mm -hmm. becomes just too much. Um, but I would say definitely consider you know a heat sink on your SSD at a minimum um, and make sure that your, your PC, if you're building one, um, has a good airflow over, and usually it does because the, the uh, the M.2 connectors are near the PCIe connectors, so you'll get some airflow from, you know, your GPU and things like that. Um, just don't neglect the heatsink on the SSD. <laughs> well, the, that'll make it a little trickier for notebook, though, right? Because the room for heatsinks a, a little trickier there. Do you oh. see a more throttling there or, no, or a, no. really okay uh, yeah start, starting a conversation with your super fast ssd throttles after 64 seconds is just not, not, not a good. winning proposition okay. um actually there's a, a related statement and it comes down to conduction paths for heat but with regard to um, a pc one thing that i notice is sometimes board manufacturers have a nylon screw for tightening down the m.2 onto the motherboard that is like the worst thing you could do for heat sink because that boring little screw at the end is actually a major thermal conduction path down hmm. to the board. And if you put a nylon screw there, um, sure, it saves some money. Sure, it, it, it looks different. But the Something. thing is, you've lost 40% of your conduction path through the board. Um, the, the, conduct, huh. the connector, the M.2 connector at the front is maybe 20%, and the screw at the back is 40%, and the rest is just radiation through the top and the bottom. We, gosh, I'm going to have to tell Kevin, he normally uses bubble gum, I think, to, uh, yeah, no, to attach not them good. in the back. Not, that's not or a good plan. Glue huh? stick, you know, when you got those hot glue guns, you just not recommended. It so mm. should definitely be a metal screw. The lab but, smells really good, though, when we've got uh, uh, Hubba Bubba purple going in there. Yeah. I mean, I'd like that personally, but if you're trying to play a game and, and you crash, that's less exciting. 
So I think maybe shift the fruity smells to the air freshener and then use the metal screw on the M.2 will probably, you know, get you the best of both worlds. In, in the server server side form factors, what do you have to do there, if anything, different? I mean, obviously the rulers are going to be heat, or most of them will be heat synced with a, a yeah. chunk of, of metal. But what else do you have to do in, uh, in two and a half inch or, or E3 form factors? Well, the main thing is to have good airflow through um, through the chassis itself, and, and the heat sinks essentially reduce the need for crazy high-speed fans because it gives you a much larger dissipation surface. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one of the requirements. If you talk to the hyperscalers, their, their airflow requirements are actually quite low because they don't want to be in data centers that, that you need like industrial-level hearing protection um, because they're so loud. Um, but running those fans consumes power, which also generates heat. It's like this nasty you know, negative feedback cycle. So the, one of the reasons why the enterprise form factors are getting so thick is because of that heat sink. Um, and, and of course, depending on what you're trying to do with the SSD, sometimes they give you really hefty power budgets, um, but but there are other uh, applications where they're, they're kept more in check. So, um, excuse me, that's the really nice thing about EDSFF is that it's very tunable to the problem you're trying to solve. Um, as for boot drives, I, I don't really see Gen 5 as being used on a boot drive. Um, typically, boot drives are actually used for logging and, and other things mm -hmm. like that. And the workload tends to actually look more like a client drive. It's very bursty and sporadic. Um, but but those ones don't have a screaming need for Gen 5. Um, I, I suspect those will stay probably in the Gen 4 space for a little while, because um, usually those are more about cost and, and stability. But for the ones that are actually serving the storage application, then um, you know our, uh, the um, the enterprise space is really starting to focus on um, something called the oh, changed names. It used to be called the OCP Cloud Drive specification. I think it has a new name now. Uh, but it, it's basically all the big players kind of came together and said, "Hey, our requirements are generally the same." And yes, there are a few that we can't give on, but the bulk of them are the same. And so. Um, the direction of that cloud drive spec um, is basically pointing to, you know, a, a very good understanding of thermals uh, and, and servers are designing that spec, SSDs are designing to that spec. So I don't anticipate there being a major problem in that space. Yeah, it's, um, I, I think it'll create some opportunity again for differentiation for these guys to be able to have storage servers that can you know, have more drives, push them to the limit, and then maybe, you know, some some unique servers that are only eight or ten drives because that may be all you want or maybe your workload can can cap out the processor. I mean, that's the other thing, too, that all of this, to a certain extent, um, is somewhat hypothetical, right? Because in certain workloads, even with today's top-end CPUs from AMD or Intel, doesn't matter, or ARM for that, that matter, mm -hmm. four or five drives can can saturate those things depending on what the workload is so we it's it's kind of a fun time must be a fun time for you guys to get to the point where storage can do a lot <laughs> these days it's it's yeah. not, it's no longer having to short stroke the hard drive to get the the <laughs> max performance yeah. right that these drives out of the box with no tuning no nonsense can can fill a cpu in terms of capabilities yeah it's neat, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, making some people like to do things just for the sake of doing it. And some people see their job as just something that gets them the paycheck. And then there are people, there's a large, 
least the largest people that I work with, not just at this company, but at many companies over the years, you know, they, they really enjoy making something that works well and meets a need. Um, and and it, it's frustrating when your technology is slow and you know that, you know, like I used to work on hard drives a long time ago um, and it was the only game in town. But mm -hmm. you knew that everybody wanted something faster, uh, but it, that technology didn't exist. And that's always something that bugged you a little bit. Now with the SSDs, with Gen 4, Gen 5, and in the future, Gen 6, we know that we are now making things that can serve a CPU at the speed that it needs. And and once you have that technology that's there, then the interesting things start to happen. Like, uh, you know, in, in the early days of the internet, when we had dial-up, the concept of having uh, something in your hand that was the power of, you know, what phones are today, um, that can calculate pi to the billionth decimal place, you know, in, in seconds. Um, that can call a taxi to your actual location and then take you to where you want to go. And that, that would be the Uber and the Lyft of today. But imagine having that concept when cell phones were the size of a brick and they, they fit on the side of your head. And you know, what if, what if Matthew Broderick redid war games with an <laughs> iPhone 13 pro max instead of that, that, uh, that crummy, yeah. that chunk the phone down on the, uh, on the, the modem to go hack the, first. yeah, I, oh. I, Gosh. I remember that movie, and it actually scared me when I was a kid. Like, could that happen? It's like, well. It seemed real when we were growing <laughs> up. Like, that was yeah. a thing. And now, I mean, you can't show kids that movie anymore. I've got uh, an 18-year-old and 11-year-old, and I've been, <laughs> I, will, I will take them through genres of, like, 80s yeah. war movies and, and, and sci-fi back then. And, and we'll watch something like uh, Predator, yeah. and the oldest will be like, what? That's a cool movie and all, but why don't they ever reload? <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, the A-Team, unlimited ammo. Yes, we never worried about that in video games or in uh, uh, sci-fi you know, shoot-em-up movies in the 80s. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the power, and you go back all the way back to the, the start of this, of delivering that instant-on feel. I mean, these, the mobile experience has driven a lot of those expectations these days. Yeah, I mean, it completely turned computers on their head. Before, there was an expectation that it would take time to boot. You would go get your coffee or whatever mm -hmm. you consumed, depending on your age. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and you would just wait, and it would boot eventually, and then the game would load, and that would take forever. And now it's like, ah, oh, three seconds. Like, traffic lights are very painful these days. So, being in the business of creating the controller, uh, I, I'm sure you guys have worked on supply chain throughout the duration of the company's history, but now it's front of mind for everyone. Sure. What What's going on? I mean, we keep seeing E18 products show up. Those look okay, but I don't know. Do you have any visibility into any challenges or, or ways Faison's been creative to make sure product can get to market? I mean, it comes down to forecasts, which our customers are, our customers are, are good mm -hmm. about doing. And, and, um, I mean, both the forecasts that we get from the customers, our own sort of extrapolation from past experience, and just making sure that we buy parts to maintain our supply chain. That's part of it, and it's sort of like the obvious answer, right? To order ahead so that you have what you need when you need it. That's part of it. But the other thing that helps us get the allocation is our scale, and we're huge. We don't, you know, we, we do make controllers, and that is essentially what enables the rest of our technology to, to happen. But we're about as vertically integrated as you can, uh, assuming that you don't have, uh, when you don't have your own silicon foundry kind of thing. So we don't uh, make our chips. We, we design them, and then we work with mm -hmm. the foundry to produce them. But our volume is so big that our allocation is is i wouldn't say protected but 
you know, as long as we give them enough forecasts, we can generally get what we need. Um, and the same thing for NAND. We buy exabytes and exabytes of NAND, huge quantities of NAND. And so because we do that, we have long-term agreements um, and we stockpile. Um, when the shortages do show up, we actually have stuff that we can put into into drives and make sellable products. So all of this comes down to a lot of planning and, and a lot of stuff that, you know, wouldn't appear in a trade magazine, like, mm -hmm. how, you know, questions about resistors and oh one of the the components that actually is is typically difficult to get is a uh, a power controller which is called a pimic um we make our own so again we're again as virtually integrated as you can be particularly on the critical components when we design a cpu we design a pimic we make both um and then we you know we order them together so we never have a shortage of pimics whereas some right so you don't end up with a, a million of one and half a million of the other right right so, so tell me about that, because I think that's kind of interesting, as I think we, and, and myself included, get, kind of get focused on the controller um, and, and sort of maybe losing sight of some of those smaller pieces like the PIMIC that you referenced. So you'll, you'll design, then you'll, you'll send that out for manufacturing, you'll contract with Micron or whoever on NAND, bring that in. How, how do we get them from all these little pieces to an assembled drive? How, how does that work? Well, this is where we use a contract manufacturer, and and the industry has has uh, changed over the years. Like if you go back 10, 15 years, you had to do everything yourself. But these days, um, there are different companies that specialize in different aspects. Some companies specialize in manufacturing and assembly lines. Some companies specialize in you know IC production, um, uh, and uh, companies like ours specialize in building whole modules kind of thing so we work with a contract manufacturer to build our drives and you know they're big they're huge um and and uh those contract manufacturers so it's not like when we show up we have to get in line behind you know 50 other guys and just wait months to get our product again we reserve our spot with more forecasting and things like that and we have long-term relationships with them and we've been you know loyal and they're loyal to us in return um but uh at the end of the day um you know one might raise the question well how can you have reliable product and reliability reliable availability if you don't control every single aspect of it and the simple answer is relationships <laughs> it turns out that if people like working with you and they see that you're reliable and you're a good customer and you give them good volume they're going to keep treating you well um and so that that argument that everything has to be vertically integrated to have success is just you know we have an existence proof to the contrary um you know we work with partners to manufacture the drives we work with partners to supply the NAND to us and then mm -hmm. on our side we um we, you could argue we are vertically integrated because we don't license all of our IP, but that, that's more of a stability, um, uh, like an availability question. We know when we want to have our next technology node uh, inflection point, and we ensure that everything is developed in time. And there are you know, a good 30, 40 IP blocks in an SSD, and if you kind of get them from different sources, um, integrating them can be really, really hard. Whereas if you are the one that designed it, then if oh, the person sure. doing the back end just calls the guy who did the you know the, the circuit design and they just talk it through, that's huge, um, and that's no, months. Yeah, there's there's no doubt, and you know I think again we go back to E18. That's probably the finest product we've ever seen out of your company. Sure, and I mean it's at the end of the day you can own the circuits, you can lease them, you can whatever, but it, the, the the customer doesn't care at the end. Yep. It's it's does this thing 
meet a performance or price or capacity or some combination of all right. these specs and does it deliver e18 has been been fantastic from what what we've seen for sure and 26 yeah. i mean i'm 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 pretty excited to see what you got going on there so as soon yeah. Is we can get uh, access to a reference board you're willing to let us play with, certainly uh, uh, let's let's get something going there because I, I think the world's going to be really on edge in terms of thinking yeah. about what can be done with Gen Five. I mean, there's so yeah. much potential there. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned the E18, and I kind of didn't latch onto that too too much. I mean, I, we talked about it a lot, but it is very different from our previous products, previous products, and. Mm. Um, and really that started with the E16. So with up until the E16, we were very, you know, our our direct customers were driving what the requirements were in the SSD and we we designed a spec. But as we transitioned to the E16 and then all the chips that came after that, we realized, well, we can show up and have a Me Too product or we can, you know, be a technology company. And, and that's where the inflection point happened on our side is we said, hey, mm -hmm. we want to lead. And that was a conscious decision by our CEO and our president. Um, and they said, hey, you know, the way that we're going to differentiate ourselves and continue to grow is by looking at the trends and then, you know, reaching for that high bar and trying to get there, you know, on time, on cost and, and everything else. But it, it was a subtle change which, which went throughout the whole company. And yes, we still take customer requirements and stuff like that, but we, we go right. into it with the mindset that we want to make, you know, a leading product. Well, no, I mean, outside looking in, that's what it feels like. I, I feel, and I mean, you say 16, I think I feel it at 18 as, the, mm -hmm. as a fundamental shift for how we perceive what you guys are doing yeah. uh, in, in terms of you know, a lot of the USB and the SD controllers and, and product, I mean, a lot of that's commodity, right? Because you can only mm -hmm. do so much with an SD yeah. card or USB drive. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, you can innovate there and you can improve security and you can do all sorts of other things. But that's that's un, unloved kind of technology True. in terms, you know, but the 18 is a, a great product and, and feels yeah. like a shift. And so that's why I think we're excited. I'm excited about seeing what comes next because yeah. of the success you've had with 18. Yeah. And we hope to deliver and satisfy everyone, our customers, our reviewers. And we're, we're looking forward to releasing that E26 in, uh, in 22. All right. Well, keep us updated. Thanks for your time today, uh, no Sebastian. This is fantastic. Love the conversation and, and love seeing where, where you guys are helping to lead the way with storage. Yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.